Hey you and welcome. My name is Mike and in this all podcast, can you imagine if I introed my podcasts or videos like any other way at this point? It's unthinkable. And in this episode, I'm going to tell you the story of a guy. Here's a guy. A guy I've actually spoken about before. I'll be here briefly. The cross-country killer or the coast-to-coast killer. More like, you know, shut that shit down from coast-to-coast. A little bit back, right? I covered the story of Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible. To go through it like like real quick, uh, they were two best friends in school in Oklahoma. Just after Christmas, 1999, Laura Bible went to have a sleepover at her best friend Ashley's home. The next day, the Freeman home, a trailer, was found burnt to the ground, and the bodies of Ashley's parents inside shot to death. The two girls, they were missing, and this, this, this great case, like the investigation, the whole thing, it went on for years, until... It was, it was finally revealed, not terribly long ago, that the two girls, they had been kidnapped, abused, killed, and then thrown in a mine shaft. Now, now to date, Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman, they still have not been found, and the three men responsible for that, well, two of them are dead. How's that for a TLD or on one of the most disturbing cases I've ever covered? But, right, during the investigation into what happened to those missing girls, a fella named Tommy Lynn Sells, he he tried to take responsibility for it. Now, okay, it turned out he was one of the few who didn't actually have anything to do with it. He was just, you know, going to take responsibility because he, you know, he, he fancied some nicer food and extra visitation privileges. But when he did try to take responsibility for it, it was believable, you know, at the time. Because, my friend, Tommy did a lot. And I mean a lot worse. What a piece of shit. Tommy Lynn sells, but I guarantee you, you don't want to buy jack shit from this goon. You know, by the way, what is it with serial killers and like these shite bags having three names? It's always something, something, something. I'll just give him one name. Fucko. Before we get into it, folks, if I could ask anything, it would be that, you know, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing the podcast, it helps out so, 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 so much. And now, that's enough faffing about. Let's give it a goo. Tommy Lynn Sells was born on June 28, 1964, in Oakland, California, to Nina and William Sells, or at least that's what it says on his birth certificate. Now, the couple already had two boys, Timothy Lee and Terry Joe, and Tommy would later claim that their real father was a man named Joe Lovins, who wasn't quite so loving, and that William Sells had only taken on, you know, legal responsibility for Tommy the two older boys, and his mother to repay a debt to Joe. The all, you know, you owe me some money, so stick him with the kids gag. You see, William, he had solid unemployment with benefits that covered his legal spouse and offspring. Though it's never been 100% confirmed, Nina Sells never denied Tommy's claims. So who his real dad is, is kind of up in the air. Now, Nina and William Sells would go on to have another set of twins, Jerry Kevin and Jimmy Keith, and later another boy, Randy Jean. That's like five boys in this family. And as with Tommy, the children's actual biological parentage was kind of uh, uncertain. It's likely that most, if not all, of the siblings were actually more likely fathered by Joe. As I said, William Sells was just getting stuck with the bill, I guess. William Sells, though, I guess he had enough of raising five 
boys while his wife was off banging Joe, so he left a family not long after Randy Jean was born. I mean, the debt was paid, I guess. He was sick of getting bombs dropped on him left, right, and center, so then he bounced. What a guy, you know, my job here is done. Now, tragedy hit Tommy at a very early age. Tommy was actually born a twin, but he and his sister, Tammy Jean, they both contracted spinal meningitis. That was misdiagnosed as pneumonia when the twins were just 18 months old. Tammy, she succumbed to the illness. Tommy, he suffered badly with fever, but he made it true. Not long after the death of his sister and uh, Tommy's own brush with death, he was sent to live in Holcomb, Missouri with his aunt Bonnie. Now, Tommy later said this was the happiest he ever had been and was. Somewhere you know he felt safe and accepted. Along with his aunt Bonnie, his two cousins, Sandy and Kathy, they, they absolutely just doted on Tommy. He was their special little guy. It was a very different atmosphere to the home life, you know, he had been used to before. By the time he was five years old, Bonnie, she was so fond of Tommy, she actually looked into adopting him. But, booty time, as soon as Nina found out, she was like, uh, uh, uh. She demanded Tommy return home. I mean, like, what a, what a malignant person. Like, she'd rather, rather have her son live in a shitty and unstable home than give him any sort of chance to be happy. Misery loves company. So, with little legal recourse and not wanting to cause trouble for him, Bonnie returned Tommy to his mother and back to the unstable environment that he'd been so close to escaping, like he'd almost made it. And you know, who knows how things would have turned out for Tommy if things had gone another way. But they didn't, and a lot of people had to live with the consequences of that. It wouldn't take long for the happy memories of his time with Aunt Bonnie to fade away. And aged just seven years old, Tommy began sneaking alcohol from under his grandfather's truck seat, having a little schnifter every now and then. And that would be the, the beginning of a long-ass future of drug and alcohol dependence. Like Tommy, he began using hard-ass drugs from 10 years old. But he thought he was a rock star. Like, it was a case of out of the frying pan into the fire, though, for Tommy. When a year later, he'd meet a man named Willis Clark from Frisbee, Missouri. Tommy said Clark would, would buy him gifts and take him for days out, which I do not like where this is going when an older man uh, starts fucking taking an 11-year-old boy under his wing. This doesn't usually end well. Now, Tommy, of course, though, he he was being, uh, I guess, what do you call it, groomed, loved bombed out. He loved having money to spend, and he enjoyed the attention and the praise. But as it, I mean, I guess seemingly always the case with Tommy Boy, the good times didn't last, and what a surprise, Clark started sexually abusing him, seemingly with Nina's consent. I'm guessing fucking Clark was paying Nina off, and I don't know what she could do. Well, she could have fucking stopped it, but I mean, you know, it was one of those cases where she would turn a blind eye to it because he provided. Mother of the year strikes again. Well, I mean, as much as I've told you about Nina, none of it has been good. So this isn't exactly a shocker for how big of a piece of shit she also was. Tommy even ended up living with the man full time and he spiraled further into dependence on drugs. But he was, he was yet to discover the addiction that would define his life. It wasn't far away though. By the way, this Willis Clark, when interviewed uh, later on, he would deny everything. He would say he never abused Tommy. Although, I mean, come on, what's he going to say? Admit it. Tragedy revisited Tommy when his biological father, 
question mark, Joe died when he was just 11 years old. There is absolutely no doubt that Tommy's you know, childhood shaped his violent and chaotic future. It's, you know, he was if he was raised in that environment, I mean, good fucking luck to him having any sort of normal life. But that's not an excuse because when we get into what he will eventually doing, you won't feel any sympathy for him, my friends. But at least you can kind of see where it's coming from. I mean, how much of it was responsible for Tommy's psychopathy and how much, you know, was simply the way he was born, that's for smarter people to work out. <laughs> I'm just a storyteller, right? I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, the, the, you know, born that way, nature versus nurture thing. But I will diagnose Tommy, if, if, if I may. Dr. Mike here, putting on the glasses. I would say he's definitely got a little disease I like to call psychoitis. And, I mean, there's simply no way that the huge amount of loss and management and abuse that Tommy experienced from such an early age in his life, like that obviously contributed to the savage trail he would later cut and carve across the USA, coast to coast. The next he did was pretty effed up. Um, I, you can insert me saying that phrase every couple of minutes because it just gets worse from here on out. While staying overnight at his grandmother's, 13-year-old Tommy, he climbed into her bed, naked in the middle of the night. Now she was quick to get the fuck out of here. And when Tommy went home a few days later, went back to his mother Nina, he found the house empty and his entire family gone. Yet again, Tommy had been left behind, and this time he was completely alone. He first hit the road less than a year later, aged 14. And so from 1978, Tommy lived a chaotic nomadic life. From then, until his final arrest over 22 years later. Now, he would work various small jobs, and he stole to survive. He wasn't exactly a career man, right? Well, he was a career killer, though. All the while, he was adding consistently to his body count, becoming more and more excessively brutal in his methods with each murder, and that is the truth. He you will see the escalation and abuse you know, that was inflicted on him. He'll use the old bounce back method. Like his mother, if it happened to me, it's gotta happen to you. Sorry. Misery loves company. Tommy claimed to have first killed a man in 1979 when he was only 15 or 16 years old. He said he caught the man in the act of abusing a boy after he'd broken into the man's home to commit a burglary. Now, just how true Tommy's account of this incident is, well, uh, uh, uh shaky, <laughs> shaky at best. Like he just randomly broke into a house to steal shit and found a guy abusing a kid and became a hero or a good guy, you know, he did the right thing here by murdering somebody, question mark. I mean, he's clearly trying to paint himself as some kind of hero here. Press X to doubt. Like you'll hear the words Tommy claimed a lot during this story. Like most psychopaths, Tommy Lincells had a very flexible relationship with the truth. He said he'd flown into a blind rage and shot the man. But, like with a lot of crimes Tommy confessed to before any evidence was presented, authorities haven't been able to confirm the crime that Tommy described. Now, that of course doesn't mean the crime didn't happen. Tommy could have easily misremembered key information or even deliberately withheld details on purpose. That would bring more attention after all, and that's what Tommy loved more than anything. The worst thing to Tommy was to be ignored and left behind like he'd been throughout his entire life. So that's when he said he first killed a man. When he, found an, uh, when he broke into a house and found a guy abusing a boy, and there's no proof that ever happened. So question mark on that one. He went on to claim that on July 5th, 1979, he was responsible for the shooting death 
of John Cade Sr. in Port Gibson, Missouri, after Cade had caught Tommy breaking into his home. Cade's wife, Kathleen, she had been disturbed in the night by what she thought in the moment was a car backfiring. Her husband then stumbled into the bedroom, turned on the light and mumbled to her that he was bleeding. He then went into the couple's bathroom and began washing his hands. Seconds later, he collapsed on the floor in a heap, dead. As his wife and two sons, Richard and John Jr., watched on, terrified. Now, when this, you know, case began, when John was bleeding, washed his hands and collapsed dead, like, the, the investigators had no clue what was going on. Nothing was stolen and there was no sign of an intruder. Kathleen, she passed the polygraph and was eventually cleared. But until Tommy's confession years later, they simply had no idea what, why anyone would want to hurt the 39-year-old chairman of the church board. The first time I did a shot of dope, it was the best feeling I ever had in my life. And the first time I killed somebody, it was such a rush. And it was just like that shot of dope. Every time I did it, it was that rush again. And I started chasing that high. How many people have you killed? Lord, I don't know. I, I don't know. 10? Yeah. 20? Probably. 30? It's up there. 50? But see, I'm not Billy the Kid making notches on, on my, my holster, so I know it's been a lot. Then in early 1980, in Oakland, California, Tommy killed a man in self-defense with an ice pick after the two men got into a fight. Tommy was stabbed as well during the fight and required hospitalization, but fled the hospital after a nurse attempted to catheterize him. Sells hitchhiked back to where his mother was staying at the time, in St. Louis, which is quite a bit away, and helped nurse him back to health. He didn't stay long with his mother, however, I mean, she wasn't a great one, setting out on the road as soon as he was healed up. He settled in with a girlfriend for a short time in a little rock, before, in May 1981, finding his way back to, to reconnect with Nina and his family, his siblings. The family reunion, though, turned um, very quickly after Tommy got ooh, into, um, well, I mean, kind of a tribute to his earlier inappropriate behavior that caused his mother to take his siblings and leave him, you know, when he tried to climb into his grandmother's bed naked. Um, well, this time, when he was a grown-ass man, he climbed into the shower with his mother and try, um, well, uh, yeah. Nina, not too keen on that, and, uh, well, she kicked him out of the house once again, and that would finally shut the door on Tommy and his family. Tommy and the fam. After a stay at a community mental health clinic in Jonesboro for the attempted, uh, attack on his own mother, Tommy began counseling sessions, but he stopped attending after just five meetings. But during them, he confessed to having killed two men during this time. Only one of those has been confirmed. Then, on March 27, 1982, he was arrested again in a Little Rock for public intoxication. At the time, he had managed to land a job uh, in a shoe store, but like everything in Tommy's life, it didn't last long. Uh, except, uh, well, you know, killing. That year, he also fathered a boy with a woman named Cindy Hanna, 
Cindy was his first love, but the two had been kept apart by her father. Um, you know, it's like Romeo and Juliet over here. Uh, after Tommy, the reason why the dad kept him apart was Tommy had robbed the church that Hannah, the Hannahs, the Hannah family attended. Which is, um, man, you're definitely going to hell for that one. So after the shit show that was his brief visit home, Tommy set back out on the road again, and by 1983, he had reached St. Louis, Missouri. There, Tommy said he beat a woman and her young daughter to death with a baseball bat. That would become a trademark of Tommy's. He was a little slugger. By that time, Tommy had set up shop in St. Louis. And on July 31st, a man named Thomas Gill, he was returning to his home on Washington Terrace from, from a beauty salon he co-owned with his wife, Colette. As he was walking towards his house, he saw Tommy, or at least a man matching Tommy's description, leaving the house, leaving his own house. So Thomas, thinking this was fucking weird, went inside, and inside the home, he found the bloody, battered bodies of his wife, Colette, and their four-year-old daughter. Upstairs, he found their one-year-old son, Sean, asleep peacefully in the crib. As with the previous John Cade Sr. murder, detectives couldn't understand why someone would want to harm Colette and their daughter. Like, at first, you know, the usual thing you immediately go to, robbery gone wrong, as there had been several break-ins in the area. But Colette's diamond wedding ring was still on her finger, and nothing else appeared to have been taken. They briefly considered Thomas as the killer as he had what, what, taken out a new $600,000 life insurance policy not long before, but no other evidence linked him, and the, and the timing just, just didn't work. As we will see again and again with Tommy Lynn Sells, robbery wasn't always the motive. Murder was the motive in itself. He would break into these houses and brutally murder, and not take a dime. And I like to watch the eyes fade. The pupil fade. What do you like about that? It, it's just like setting their soul free. In September 1984, Tommy was given two years in prison after being convicted of stealing a Ford Mustang in Benton, Missouri on May 8th. He was released on parole on the 18th of February 1985, but quickly broke his parole and was returned to prison to serve the rest of his sentence. During his sentence, a girlfriend of Tommy's, Nicole Snow, would give birth to his second child, a daughter. After that, Tommy went into a court-mandated rehab center in Vichy, Missouri, but that was a very brief stint. Tommy left, hitched, and hiked his way to Forsyth, Missouri, and began working at a county fair, where, on July 26th, 1985, he met a small, attractive, dark-haired, 35-year-old woman named Ina who was at the fair with her four-year-old son, Rory. Ina, she invited Tommy back to the house, and things went south. After Tommy caught Ina going through his bag, or, I mean, at least that's what Tommy said. It's just as likely she didn't do anything at all to trigger Tommy. He just had the intention of what he was going to do as soon as he saw her. And he beat Ina to death with a baseball bat, his signature to almost all of his crimes. He then turned his attention to the only witness to the crime, four-year-old Rory. Tommy took the bat to the boy, and their bodies were found three days later. 
that same year, in September, Tommy crashed a car while high and while drunk. Surprise, surprise. He also had two underage girls in the car with him at the time, and he was arrested and sent back to jail. He was briefly released on parole, but that was revoked not long after, and he was returned to Boonville Correctional Facility, where he had earlier served time, you know, for that Ford Mustang theft. He was released in May 1986. That year, Tommy was suspected of being the one who killed 19-year-old Michelle Xavier and 20-year-old Jennifer Dewey in Fremont, California. Though this wasn't confirmed, and Tommy never specifically confessed to the crime. 1987 was a particularly violent year for Tommy Lynn Sells. In Nevada, in October, Tommy drugged 20-year-old Stephanie Kelly Stroh, a student at Reed College, San Francisco, and he drugged her with LSD, strangled her to death, before setting her feet in a bucket of concrete, dangling her body off the back of his truck overnight as the concrete set. He then drove her out to the desert and threw her body into a hot spring. Stephanie. She had just returned to America from a, for a, you know, a 10-month trip backpacking across Europe, and she was now in the middle of hitchhiking across the States, something she'd always dreamt of doing. Tommy would say he had picked her up, you know, in his pickup truck, and he'd given her drugs and she'd taken them voluntarily. Then, he killed her. Stephanie's body has never been found, despite multiple searches, and authorities have never been able to confirm Tommy's story, but from the amount of details he's come out with, it's very likely that that is exactly what happened. Usually when his stories turn out to be false, you know, he'd be much more vague about what actually happened. With this one, he went into the little intricacies of the crime and the unnecessarily brutal things he did pre and post murder. And several witnesses would later describe seeing a man matching Tommy's description, driving a pickup truck and arguing with a young woman on the roadside. Tommy then, he headed east in early November. 1987, and he would later claim to have killed Susan Quartz in Amherst, New York. Susan's remains weren't found until eight years later, in September 1995, at the base of an escarpment near Niagara Falls. She disappeared after she led a club alone in New York. Tommy would confess to killing her in 2004, but, you know, this hasn't been confirmed. But again, it's very likely, given the details, Tommy knew about the crime, and he was in the area at the very time. Late in November 1987, Tommy, he was hitchhiking his way across America, going left, going east, you know, going right, going east, going west, going up, going down. So when he was hitchhiking his way back west towards Illinois, he was given a ride by a man named Keith Dardine, who offered Tommy a meal at his home with his family. Once they arrived, Tommy pulled a gun, shot Keith twice in the head before mutilating his genitals and shooting him a third time in the face. Tommy then made his way inside the Dardine's home, where he bludgeoned Keith's young son Peter to death and beat his pregnant wife Elaine so badly she went into spontaneous labor. He then bludgeoned the newborn Casey Dardine to death as well. Tommy left, but not before further mutilating Elaine's body and posing her in a sexually suggestive way using the baseball bat he had just used to murder her children. I wonder if you could just tell me what happened as you were killing her. Did she, did she give birth to a baby? You know, you're pushing your luck. I'm sorry. Let's let's not get let's not get into blood and guts, because because that's what you're trying to get into. That's probably 
the most intensely disgusting and disturbing thing Tommy did. Like, there was simply no reason for the killing in the first place. And, well, I mean, I suppose you could say that about every single one of Tommy's crimes, but the level of brutality and cruelty, that was purely for his own uh, gratification. Like, he, he gained nothing he did from the crime. He didn't even steal or cover it up. He didn't do anything. He simply did it because he enjoyed doing it. It wasn't a means to an end for Tommy. You know, the means were the end. And over the next five years, between 1987 and 1992, Tommy continued to roam between the states, from New Hampshire to Utah, Florida to Arizona, and he continued to add more and more bodies to the final tally, with a few smaller stints in prison along the way. On the 13th of May, 1992, in Charleston, West Virginia, 19-year-old Fabienne Witherspoon was driving back from a job interview when she spotted Tommy on the side of the freeway with a will work for food sign. And she was feeling sorry for him, so she stopped and after he'd spun her a tale about living under a bridge with his wife and their three children, she offered him a ride to get some food and some fresh clothing. After driving him back to her home, she asked him to wait outside while she went inside and packed him up some sandwiches. After she'd finished wrapping up some food for him, she turned and was startled to see he had suddenly invited himself into her house. But she didn't think it was um, all that weird, not sensing what was about to happen. She then went upstairs to get Tommy some clothing. Unknown to Fabienne, Tommy then went around the house, locked the doors, and he began climbing the stairs after her. Cornered in the bedroom, and Tommy now wielding a knife he had taken from a block in the kitchen, she begged him not to hurt her, but Tommy pounced, stabbing at her and trying to sexually assault the 19-year-old. Now, Fabienne, she was pretty fucking cool. She was going to do everything she could to ruin Tommy's day, and she fought back. She scratched, she bit, she kicked, she punched him. She wrestled the knife away from him, despite being cut all over herself. Tommy was then stabbed several times in return, including a cut to his liver and a nice old cut to the balls. Fabienne, she'd been beaten, she'd been, you know, attacked severely, but she survived. Sadly, so was Tommy. He was in a bad state, though he initially managed to flee the area, it didn't last long, and he ended up in the ICU. And Tommy would land in custody after recovering and pleading guilty to a charge of malicious wounding, and he would be sentenced to five years for the attack. Now, some people speculated that, you know, Tommy's encounter with Fabienne led to him choosing more vulnerable people to attack in future. Like, she was a grown woman and was able to fight back and win the fight. So, after this, Tommy would always make sure to only attack people he knew he could overpower, which would weigh heavily on, on her mind in particular. Now, of course, the only people responsible for Tommy is Tommy himself. A grown-ass piece of shit. But after this, Tommy would specifically target young children. He served the full five-year prison term and was finally released in July 1997. Tommy didn't even wait a full four months before striking again. At 4 a.m. on October 13th, 1997, in Lawrenceville, Illinois, PhD student Julie Ray was woken in the dead of night by a blood-curdling scream coming from her son's bedroom. She was jolted awake and she sprinted towards his room where she was horrified to come face to face with a man wearing a ski mask and she couldn't see where her 10-year-old son, Joel, was. 
Julie, she went, you know, immediately into survival mode, fighting with a man through the whole house all the way to the garden. There, the man punched her directly in the face, knocking her flat and fleeing the home. Joel, he'd been stabbed to death in his bed with a knife that had been taken from their kitchen. Absolutely horrific for a mother to, to experience and go through, but that wouldn't be the end for Julie. Not only was her son brutally murdered right, you know, pretty much in front of her and her having to fight off the killer, authorities focused on Julie. With seemingly little evidence of the random intruder she claimed was responsible, this guy in a ski mask, Julie herself was charged and ultimately found guilty of her son's murder. All the while protesting her innocence, saying an intruder was there and no one believed her. In fact, that's something we've seen a couple of times in the home, uh, you know, home invasions that Tommy Lynn Sells would do. He left little to no evidence behind every time. Julie would be sentenced to 65 years in prison. On December 31st, 13-year-old Kayleen Katie Harris and 10-year-old Crystal Searles were having a sleepover when Tommy broke into the house where the girls were sleeping. He sexually assaulted Kayleen and slit her throat, killing her. He then went after Crystal and once again slashed her throat before he left, believing he had murdered them both. Crystal, however, not only survived by playing dead, she managed to get to the neighbor's house the very next morning for help, surviving an entire night with her throat slit right beside the dead body of her best friend. Unfortunately, it was too late for Kayleen by the time the police arrived, but with the help of a police sketch artist, 10-year-old Crystal was able to accurately describe Tommy Lynn Sells. Sells actually knew Kayleen's adopted father, Terry Harris, and the police knew Tommy and where to find him. Sells was arrested on the 2nd of January 2000 at the trailer he was sharing with his then-wife and their four children. The children were stepchildren to Tommy, not his biological. When the police rocked up, he didn't even ask why he was being arrested. After all, from California to Texas to New York, Tommy Lynn Sells had left a trail of brutalized dead bodies. And that's not counting the innumerable petty crimes he had pulled along the way. At this point, it didn't matter to Tommy what he was being arrested for. Tommy pleaded guilty to the charges of first-degree murder and attempted murder. He was ultimately sentenced to death for the murder of Kayleen Harris. Now, though it was the murder of Kayleen Harris that actually landed him on death row, authorities estimate Tommy Lincells killed approximately 22-24 people, while Tommy himself, he claims he killed closer to 70 people. I'd say the, true, the truth lies somewhere in between the two, but goddamn, that's a lot of people Tommy Lincells murdered all across America. I mean, n numerous victims of his that he's confessed to haven't even been found. So how many of those he hasn't confessed to will never be found. And speaking of Julie Ray, who was convicted of murdering her own son, Joel, Tommy Lancells wasn't identified. It wasn't until Julie had served two years of the 65-year sentence when she gave an interview to 2020 on ABC that true crime writer Diane Fanning heard Julie's stories and she, and she noted several details that seemed all too familiar. Now, Diane Fanning was already in the process of finishing writing a book about Tommy Lynn Sells. Sells was already in prison at this time for the crime that would see him executed, the attack on the two young girls. So Diane Fanning approached Tommy Lynn Sells via letter about Julie's story, 
And Tommy wrote back with a letter asking if she was talking about the murder that took place two days before he killed 13-year-old Stephanie Mahoney, a crime he was also indicted for after confessing key details. Stephanie was murdered on the 15th of October, Joel on the 13th. They were talking about the same murder. Julie would be released in 2004 after evidence the police had committed perjury came to light. She was retried in 2006, this time with an audio tape full of Cell's confession on her side. She was finally completely exonerated of any involvement in her son's murder. Cells, he wasn't actually tried for the murder of young Joel, but it's, you know, it's accepted he did it. He's the one in the ski mask, the one responsible. Julie Ray went on to work as an advocate for women claiming to have been falsely convicted. Now, Tommy Lynn Sells, I've I talked about a lot of the murders he he committed, but I haven't I barely covered half of them. Like to go through every murder Tommy Lynn Sells actually committed, we'd be here all day, and I may as well just do a PowerPoint presentation and go through the bullet points because because there's so there's so many murders he committed, I don't want to lose just how horrific each and every one actually was, and how much of a monster this guy was. Uh, you know, a person who was. Uh, yeah, abused, fair enough, he was abused as a kid. He had a horrible childhood. He was surrounded by horrible adults who should have looked after him, and they didn't. He was abused emotionally, physically, and sexually growing up. But then, when he was out on his own, he was addicted to drugs, he was addicted to alcohol, and he just began killing. Saying his first murder was, oh, I kind of just, you know, ass over tea kettled into my first murder by trying to save somebody else who was also being abused. And then, he got addicted to it. But... Addicted to the murders themselves is what is the weird thing. I mean, he was a cross-country killer. He never had a fixed abode or rarely did for long, usually staying in trailer parks with a woman he managed to convince into sleeping with him and marrying him and whatever. But the murders were what got him. He rarely... He would commit burglaries all the time, but when it came to the murders, he didn't. He didn't usually rob the people he killed. He just... killed them. And after one managed to fight back, he decided to go for a more vulnerable, easier prey. Until, well, one murder he thought he committed, he didn't. She survived and was able to identify him. And then in prison, he decided to just come out with it and say every single thing he had done. Which was a lot. At 6.27pm on April 3rd, 2015, Tommy Lynn Sells was put to death by lethal injection at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, near Livingston. He was 49 years old. It was a... at this point... Like, I'm not in favor really of the death penalty, typically, but when you have a monster like Tommy Lincells, what else are you gonna do with him? Really, what else? You, just end it. Just end it. Tommy, I mean, Tommy Lincells easily falls into the most sadistic tier, tier of terrifying serial killers. Like, he's right up there with the biggest heavy hitters we got. Uh, the randomness of his victims, the brutality of his crimes from old women to literally babies, newborn babies. Like one of the one women he killed was pregnant. She had a spontaneous, she went into spontaneous labor and then he beat the baby, like, my God. Tommy described his first time murdering someone as being like a shot of heroin. He even said he was addicted, addicted to murder. And he basked in the notoriety of being known as a killer. That was the highest praise you could give Tommy Lynn Sells. He once claimed to be the embodiment of hatred, but he wasn't. He wasn't anything like that. He was an impotent piece of shit whose fear of abandonment led him to wanting to lash out at others. He was pathetic, and he was a monster. I am hatred. 
When you look at me, you look at hate. When you look at me, you know what hate is. I don't know what love is. Two words I don't like to use is love and sorry. Because I'm about hate. But what he did, what he did was horrific. Like, few killers will admit to enjoy killing, even though a lot of them do. Especially not when a lot of them have killed children like Tommy did. He once said that the reason he killed children was so that, quote, they don't have to live true what he lived true. As if he was doing them a fucking favor. Well, the bullshit Tommy Lynn sells, or was selling, no one's buying. Thank you so much for listening to this old podcast on Tommy Lynn Sells, one of the worst monsters I've covered. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, really, it means it means a lot to me that you guys are sticking around and listening to this podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, if I could ask you just to review and rate the podcast, it helps out tremendously. Um, and yeah, right. Sinead, I guess we can leave it there. We'll leave it there, guys. Thanks for listening. And listen, as always, please take care of each other and yourselves because guess what? I love you. My guess.